Well, hello, all you beautiful chicks and dudes of all sorts. This is Suave Rob Suarez, the bitchin' double X daredevil star of Suave Rob's amazing ass saving association, here with another ass saving tip, totally free from me to you, to help you save your ass so you can live to sit another day. Now, back in the day, when dudes were dudes, this one dude, Benchmark Bob, buddy of mine, he had this little accident. He tried frying up an egg when he was totally hammered. So he washed a pan, then didn't dry it, then put a shitload of butter in it, then turned on the heat. Well, when you do that, chicks and dudes, the water makes the oil go splatso all over your own personal face. And good old Benchmark got his bench marked, if you know what I mean. Like, when he took his apron away from his face, it looked less like a face and more like someone had stepped on a pepperoni pizza. I don't like to think about it. But that goes to show you, you know? Always dry your pans before you put oil in them, man. Especially if you're frying an egg. Want to know where I learned all this gonzo shit? I got it all done up pretty for you in Suave Rob's Double X Daring Do, the first book of Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures by J. Daniel Sawyer. Come share the awesomeness with me, my brothers, because you never know. The ass you save may be your own. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. All right, welcome back to part two of what's going to be three parts of, deal of what life is like when you're out in parts rural. Uh, this is specifically for you city slickers like we used to be who like to write stories in rural settings. For you city slickers like we used to be who like to write stories that are set in rural settings in one fashion or another. In this one we're going to talk about the importance of order of operations. This is not something that a lot of people in the city have to deal with very much unless your job involves logistics or coordinating large projects, or if you have a hobby that involves doing complicated projects that, are, that have multi-stages to them, like if you do carpentry or something like that. Otherwise, or cooking large meals for or, a lot of people. Or cooking large meals for a lot of people. Otherwise, order of operations isn't something you run into as a thing in itself most of the time. It's usually implied in stuff that you do, and it's not something you pay a lot of attention to. Up here, order of operations, especially when you're building out from bare land, is everything. If you do things in the right order, things tend to go smoothly, even in the face of disasters. If you do things in the wrong order, you can die. I suppose the one thing that uh, sticks in, in my mind is that you have a different set of priorities when you are setting up a homestead or rural property, especially when there's nothing built already. Most of us in, will, on instinct, prioritize the living space. Mm -hmm. And that's really secondary when you're out here. We spent a lot of time worrying about it, but a trailer that is, you know, like a camp trailer that is big enough for you and your family and your pets mm -hmm. is sufficient. A tent will work. Yep. The point is shelter from the weather. Shelter is a huge thing. If you don't have shelter, you will die. Especially if you're in a place that gets winter. 
If you're not in a place that gets winter, your shelter can be pretty flimsy, but you still do have to protect yourself from rain and wind, or you will die. But it doesn't have to be luxurious, as long as it'll keep the weather out. A higher priority is building storage space, space for your tools, space for your power. Those are much higher priority and things that most people don't think about as readily. Let's let's back off from the specific to the general. When you're doing a big complex project like this, especially out where you can't just pop to the store and buy what you need for wherever you're stuck, the most important skill you can have is the ability to break down a project so that you do things in such an order that each step makes the subsequent steps easier and more and more possible. In our case, um, and in the case of anyone who's doing the kind of thing we're doing, that means the first thing you need isn't even living space, as long as you've got a tent and a really thick sleeping bag. The first thing you need is workspace, because everything you do comes out of that shop. This is actually what I was trying to say, but Dan is explaining the principle behind why other stuff is the priority over the living space. What you've got to do when you're breaking down anything like this, and what any rural character that you write will have to know how to do, assuming they're not dead already, or going to die in the course of your story through tragic accident of the sort that you read about from, uh, uh, oh, like, what was that? Uh, that that book, Into the Wild, where that one guy went out and lived in a trail, lived in his van in Alaska and then winds up dying at the end. Um, I don't know if he dies at the end of the book, but the guy that did that died very uh, either at the end of the book or shortly after he finished writing it. Um, you have to look at your limiting principles. What are the things that are most dangerous, the most urgent problems to solve for? And they're not necessarily the ones that are first on your mental list, because they may be problems you haven't run into yet, so you're not considering them as live options. Um, what was important here? Well, the first and most important thing was not dying from the weather. We had that sorted before we ever got our living space up here because we had a good tent. It was a little pop-up tent, not very fancy, but it was enough to keep the weather off. I weathered two snowstorms in it perfectly comfortably, and several rainstorms. Uh, couldn't stand up in it, but that wasn't what it was for. It was for keeping me warm and dry when the world didn't want me out in it. Mm -hmm. The Second, and, and frankly, a car can work for this, too. I also weathered a week of sub-zero temperatures camping in the car at one point because I got tired of the tent because of how hard and cold the ground was. So I moved to the car. I just put my sleeping bag in the car. Wound up working better. So you need to find out your limiting things. It's the, the, limiting, the first limiting principle is what can kill you if you're not looking at it. Around here, that's the weather, the predators... And your tools, the biggest, most important things. So what do you want to make sure you've got? You want to make sure you've got shelter. You want to make sure you have a dog or a gun or both. And you want to make sure that you've got safety gear, earplugs, safety glasses, that you know how to run whatever you're running without injuring yourself, whether it's a power saw or a hatchet or a chainsaw or a welder or whatever. And with regards to predators, you also need a secure way to store and mm, throw yes. away food. 
Yep, one of the first things we brought up here, even before we brought ourselves up here, were lockable 55-gallon metal drums. And every day after every meal, everything, including the dirty dishes, went back into those drums. Yep. And thank God they did, because that bear came sniffing around as soon as... The, the, the minute that I forgot to do that, I had a bear in camp that night. Mm-hmm. And that night, I didn't have a gun or a dog. <laughs> And I actually, and the bear would not go away. So I actually had to call a friend who was down in town who came up here and scared it off because I was not in a place where I could get out to it and confront it without putting my life at risk. But you get a big, scary sounding diesel truck come up and shine headlights in your face, and you're a bear, you run away. Works great. And we still have and still use those 55 gallon drums for storage of the animal feed. Yep. And they work wonderfully, they don't let the smell out, and they don't incentivize the snoopy bears and coyotes from coming around. And the compost pile is way away from camp for the same reason. Now, once you've got what's going to kill you right away taken care of, you next want to look at what things you need to do in order to enable the projects you want to accomplish. In my case, that meant I had to dig holes to put foundations in for the buildings that I was going to Put in. So I had to have a shovel and a post hole digger and a what's called a digging spike. It's basically a hand-operated jackhammer because we have very rocky ground here. And the first couple of weeks involved digging the footings for and putting up a uh, portable building for our shop and digging the holes for the power shack and for some of the other buildings that we've since put up. Took a long time because I didn't have a jackhammer. <laughs> Later on for another project, I rented a jackhammer and kicked myself for not starting out that way because, oh my god, I did what used to be a month's worth of work in an afternoon. Once you've got your workspace sorted out, the next thing you do once you actually start doing the projects is you want to break them down so that you've always got the materials and the tools you need before you need them. Because anytime you have to stop and go to town or go to the nearest big city, you're not just wasting time and money. You're also sapping your motivation. And one of the th- it's, it's just as true when you're um, living out where you don't have a lot of friends right around as it is when you're in the army. Morale is everything. The frustration that comes from starting and stopping and starting and stopping can literally make you suicidal, especially if you don't have someone around, especially several someones around, to commiserate with and to buck you up. Yeah. One of the unexpected advantages of having our dog is that when I was hitting that, oh my god, it's just not worth it and I'd rather go back to the city and I'd rather die than keep doing this points, and I hit that two or three times over this summer, was that I could just take a break and I could go hike with the dog or play fetch with the dog and remind myself that it was worth it. It's like with writing. Managing your morale is everything. And the tougher the challenge, the more important it is. Almost anyone can rise to almost any challenge, physical limitations aside. But if you don't manage your emotional state in a very proactive sense, you can get defeated very easily. Humans can do amazing things if they scale their expectations and attitude to match. This is one of the reasons that some people survived the death camps in World War II. Yeah, they, they had PTSD, but they went on to live lives that were pretty okay. And other people didn't survive the camps even though they weren't executed. They killed themselves. Or they killed themselves afterwards. 
because they couldn't maintain their morale. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. But if you're writing a character who's off doing this kind of stuff, they're a mountain man or they're stuck in a post-apocalyptic landscape or whatnot, they're going to be managing their mental state in a very proactive fashion or they're not going to last long. An example of, of this in, um, in fiction was a novel series that took place in a, in a sort of medieval world. Oh, yes. This was uh, Lowell's novels. Yeah. Uh, the Tanith Fairport series. Yes. I produced the audiobooks for them. Wonderful books. And there is one character, the wife of the village head, who does a, a tea service. And they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in rough little huts. And she's got nice china that her husband bought for her before they left to remind her of the good things. Mm-hmm. And it's a small little scene, but it really captures the importance of morale and that small things, small luxuries sometimes. And rituals. And rituals create morale. Um, It might be something for your characters like having some nice things that don't really fit the setting. Having pipe tobacco and whiskey. In our case, it's... Spices for Indian food and Japanese food. As right. long as we've got those around, we're pretty okay. Mm-hmm. But th- think about those little things. Like you, you don't want your rural characters to be obsessed with the same kinds of things that city folk would have, or to have all of the same things that city folk will have. But when they do, it's a deliberate choice. Something that they have done in order to boost their morale. Mm-hmm. Not just because they like having good coffee, but they have made coffee a ritual that they do every day that makes them feel sane, that makes them feel normal. Yep. And this is, uh, you may be uh, starting to get a handle through all of this on why there's such a dramatic worldview divide between city folk and rural folk. One of the things that I've seen people complain about on Twitter in political conversations, for example, is why do all the conservatives live off in parts rural? They have things tougher. They should be more interested in government uh, subsidies and welfare programs and whatnot. And yet they are always saying that they don't want these things and that they don't want their tax money going to these things. Have they no heart? What, don't, how does anyone survive out there? The reason is that when you have to do for yourself... You're not just doing for yourself. You have to do for your community. Everybody around here depends on everybody else in a very tight-knit sort of way. And when you get outside parties who are interested in making life easier for everybody, it actually disrupts social networks in a way that can threaten life. And so over time, people who live out here get reflexively suspicious of anything that comes from a bureaucracy that's not managed locally because everybody's used to their trust being mediated by personal relationships and they don't trust institutions. Sometimes people move out here because they don't trust institutions in the first place. Most of the time what happens is people move out here because they want to be close to nature, because they want to retire in a beautiful place, or because they've got a lot of kids and they want their kids to be able to run around and have a bit of freedom in their lives as their children. 
what winds up happening is they get so used to trust being mediated through personal relationships that they develop that suspicion over time. And we've, although neither of us are anything you would call conservative, we've noticed some of that attitude shift in ourselves, and we've witnessed it in hippie liberal friends like us who have moved out to parts rural. And though they never become conservatives, boy, do they become what city folk would call paranoid. It's not exactly paranoia. What it is, is it's an understanding that certain kinds of help actually, in the aggregate, put everyone's lives in danger out here. And so when you have characters that are out in this kind of environment, they're gonna be pricklier. They're gonna be more suspicious. They may be friendlier, they often are, but they're not quite as quick to trust. And when the trust is earned, the trust means something. Personal loyalty gets really, really important. To the point where if you have a falling out with your neighbor, you do everything you can to remedy that falling out. Or you move. Or you move. Um, Because what you don't want is a feud. And feuds can be very, very dangerous, not because people come around and shoot each other with guns. That almost never happens out in rural land. It can happen in the inner cities. And historically, when you had clans running around, that would happen. But the way rural parts are now, where it's not family groups that are doing these things, feuds don't usually turn violent, but they do turn nasty. And you can, you've got the small town mentality where people will sabotage you through gossip um, and make it harder for you to access the help you need and harder for you to offer the help you can because they sow distrust among the rest of the community. And even smaller than that is simply not having help available Mm -hmm. when you need it because your neighbor hates you for some small thing. Mm-hmm. They might not take you to the hospital when injured and can't drive your car out. Right. You don't want to be in those kinds of situations. So people in parts rural tend to be very private, and they tend to be very friendly. And it's a strange mix when from when you're in the city, because in the city people are less friendly... Because you have to be, because you're stuck cheek by jowl with people, and seeing people is not a treat, and it can be quite annoying. You're subjected to everybody else's prickly parts all the time. But people in the cities, at least in the West Coast and in the South, tend to be very uh, open. They don't really care what people think about them if they're not immediate friends. So they don't tend to worry too much about privacy. Out here, you don't always know what prejudices your neighbors or their friends may be harboring. So you tend to be very private about your personal lives and very, very involved in community life. So um, that weird thing that you can see in, um, say, social conservative circles where people are really protective of the family bubble, even if that means that, yeah, sometimes kids are going to get abused, that makes no sense if you grew up in the city. It seems ridiculous that you would put that kind of boundary there. It just enables bad behavior. Out here, that bubble is there to protect your family against busybodies coming in and screwing with your ability to survive. 
that's a re- that's been a really interesting and difficult transition for us to make because we are very open people who like talking about everything. And one of the ways we've dealt with it is we've imported some friends who are the same way. So we've got a fairly sizable group of people we can talk to like that while we learn how to properly conduct ourselves according to the customs of the locals. One thing I think that... Uh one way in which rural living has changed over the last 20 or 30 years is the existence of the internet and social media. Um, Our city friends are people that, that we interact with every day or can interact with every day because they're our friends on Facebook. They're, um, they're phone call away. We have their email addresses we send them pictures of what we're up to. They follow us on Instagram. You know, they're still part of our lives. Moving out to the country didn't mean that accessing our friends was particularly difficult. We just can't go to their um, beer-making parties and, mm-hmm. and to the 4th of July. And, and the New Year's Gala and all that stuff. We don't see them, but we're still part of their lives. They're still part of our lives. They know what's going on. We have people who we have other commonalities with that we have roots with that are still part of our lives and it, it, it doesn't take hours or days or weeks to get a hold of them. And that makes a big difference. And, and yeah, 20 or 30 years ago, that was a much more difficult proposition. If you moved out into parts rural, you were uprooting your whole life. Now, not so much. And of course, Amazon, we were talking about supply chains last time. Things like Amazon and other internet commerce and uh, shipping, oh boy, does it make it easier. It's like the old days of the Sears catalog. You can get anything you need if you're willing to wait long enough, even in times of supply chain disruptions. But you have to be willing to wait long enough. And for people who are foodies and um, foreign, like you, like I am (laughs) and we are, having the access to international cuisine by mail makes a huge difference in an area where there isn't an Asian grocery store where the Asian section is literally top ramen and soy sauce, right? In the past, people who cared about international cuisine or people for whom international cuisine is their home cuisine, you either live in the city or you go to a city as frequently as possible to access the international grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Or, even old school, you have friends in your home country that sends you your favorite food. Yep. That's another interesting thing that's changed because country folk tend to have this uh, reputation of being absurdly racist. And it's not unearned, but it is out of date. The way that things have changed probably over the last... uh, And my guess is that when it changed was with the hippies back to the land movement in the 70s. Mm. Um, There's a lot more transplants out here than there used to be. We've got some friends who have family going back, uh, and this was true in the other two rural locations we've lived in before this. We've had friends who had family that went back 100 years in the area, and they considered anyone who hadn't been here 20 years as not worth talking to. It's not the case anymore. Now, a substantial part of the uh, population in all of the rural places we've lived are transplants. And so the rubric has changed. People aren't... um, aren't shutting others out because they're 
a different ethnicity or a different religion or a different culture. They just tend to treat newcomers for the first couple of years with a bit of caginess until they're sure that the newcomers will interact in the way that's proper for the area. And will stay. And will stay long, because people don't want to invest in people that are going to wash out after their first or second winter. So... Everyone's a tourist until they've been here long enough. Yep. So in the area we're in, for example, up until about the early 90s, it was basically white folks and Native Americans. Now it's white folks, Native Americans, Mexicans, Central American transplants, Indians from Bangalore, um, African Americans who fled from Los Angeles who want a place. And the only thing that anyone holds against them is that they're from California. Seriously, being from California is a lot more... <laughs> it's a lot more damaging than anything else. Yeah. I'm so glad that we lived three other places. So when we when people ask, hey, where'd you move from? We can say, oh, we, well, we were in Maine. Oh, well, that's fine. At least you're not from California. <laughs> and I'm from another part of the same state that we're in. So... When people ask me where I'm from, I just say, oh, I'm from over there. And mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, the western <laughs> part of the state. Oh, fine. Yep. And I grew up my first, uh, the first part of my life in Texas. So if worse comes to worst, I can, and I'm sure that someone doesn't want to hear that I lived in California at one point. And I'm like, oh, well, I, first part of my life I lived in Texas. And they're like, oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's how, and of course, my secret is out by now because enough people around here have figured out I'm an author and they've picked up the Clark Lantham books <laughs> that they know. But, um, but it gave me a little bit of uh, artificial social credit before they mm -hmm. found out where I'm really from. Um, but there will, that, that attitude of suspicion towards outsiders persists, but who the outsiders are has changed a lot. And I've heard reliable reports from friends of mine who have moved to the deep south to do this, that things are a lot more like that there now. There's a lot less embedded racism in the culture because of how much mixing and transplantation there's been over the last 50 years. Hey, you, you could see that even in the 80s and 90s in the south, though. Yeah, um, that's true. Like, but that was mostly in the cities. I'm, I'm thinking of my cousin Vinny, right? Right. When... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Yankees coming to town. Right. It wasn't because they were Italian. It was because they were Yankees. Exactly. The people from the area, whether they were white or black or... I don't think there were any other characters. Of no, it was just, just uh, apple, uh, southern white folks and southern black folks. They were all locals. Mm -hmm. And there did not seem to be any difference between them. Well, there was some. And, 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 and at that time, there was still a, a pronounced thing. But it was much less than it was, say, in the 50s. Right, but it still was a lot less than the difference between the, the folks from New York and the yes. folks from town. Mm -hmm. There was a, the, the hierarchy of suspicion always puts outsiders at the top of the list in exactly, parts rural. Exactly. So anyway, uh, that was a bit of a digression. But yeah, order of operations, being able to break down a project so that every step will give you maximum leverage and, and make the following steps as smooth as possible. And anytime you can do one thing that will accomplish two things, you're in great shape. All of those are top-level concerns for someone who's out trying to make their way on bare land or who's work, trying to bootstrap a farm or anything like that. I want to roll back around to the thing I said in the beginning that um, your living situation is not your first priority. Yes. 
I stated that specifically because almost everyone we know who um, is having a difficult time with the transition from urban to rural. That's true. They prioritize the living situation above all else, didn't they? Exactly. They've prioritized their living situation and their creature comforts. Which is what you do in the city. Over the other projects, over the support structure that they need to Mm -hmm. make the life work. Yes. Very, very important. All right. Next time will be the last episode of this, and we will talk about defense in depth and uh, order of operations and all this stuff when you're not doing the off-grid crazy thing, but you're still in parts rural. We'll see you then. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. 